Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness. And every week, I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. This holiday break, we're celebrating beauty from all angles. Science, history, self-care, and beyond. Last week, I answered your beauty questions, and today we're re-releasing an episode where biological anthropologist Dr. Tina Lassisi is answering mine. Now, here's the thing. This episode was one of the most eye-opening and one of my low-key favorites from the year. Dr. Lassisi is like a literal icon and genius, and I learned so much I can't even stand it, which is why I'm so excited that we're re-releasing it. Take a listen and stay tuned for one more stunning re-release next week. Without further ado... Here's my conversation with Dr. Tina Lassisi, where I ask her, hair variation, what's that story? Uh, welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. This is going to be such a good episode. I can't even stand it. I'm going to dive right in and introduce our guests. We have Dr. Tina Lassisi, who is a postdoctoral researcher in biological anthropology. Her interests include the evolution of human variation in pigmentation and scalp hair, as well as science communication. Your, like, scholar resume makes you want to take my stuff as on a music stand in a sound studio right now. I want to take it. I want to flip it. It's bringing out my, like, Indiana primal man rage when they see, like, their team win. I'm like, yeah, ooh, ooh, except for it's about gorgeous biological anthropology in your scholarship versus, like, a hideous heteronormative sport. So, first of all, welcome. Thank, Thank you for you. taking your time. <laughs> I'm so excited to talk to you about this because like you're a hair expert. That's just a fact. I'm speaking to a hair colleague and I'm just so <sighs> excited to talk to you about this and like ask you questions about your observations because I feel like we're basically two people who work on the same thing, but like from different angles, you're applied and you have all of this knowledge from all the people's heads you've seen. And I have all this theory uh, and books <laughs> and data. <laughs> I just, and as long as we're... Your hair, just the, this texture, everything about it, just um, so fucking pretty. I mean, the crop, your cute face. I am trying to do this cute thing where I don't compliment everybody, but when it's this good, I am just going to stick to my roots as a hairstylist who is a hairstylist first, so I can't help it. I have too many questions, and I can already tell from our pre-production that we're going to have too mm-hmm. much fun, so I, I know. I'm not going to get sidetracked. I'm saying no uh, to distraction. <laughs> what is biological anthropology, just to get us on the same note? Yes. So anthropology is the study of humans. And there's basically different flavors of anthropology. There is cultural anthropology, which a lot of people know. There is archaeology, which a lot of people don't know is part of anthropology. Then there's linguistic anthropology. And then there's me, which is biological anthropology, which would be anything that lets you understand what it means to be human from a biological perspective. Okay, my mind just got blown in seven ways. So the people that like go to Pompeii and are like dusting stuff, like not for fossils, but like in ruins, that's an archaeologist, right? That is an archaeologist, but you just touched on a sensitive little fact there because there's classical archaeologists. And so they're their own little clique sometimes and they don't want to be part of this. There's a lot of overlapping Venn diagrams is what's happening. So biological anthropology is understanding what it means to be human in history ever, right? Not even just history. It can include history, but just like in general, it can even be the present. So there's (sighs) people who do biocultural anthropology and they look at people today. And I actually look mostly at modern people. 
Ah, it's everything. Counter. It's everything. Like we're a little bit like that. It's like it's still a little bit of that colonial urge where it's like, oh, this that's ours. That's ours. All of it is anthropology. Fuck that. I get it. But you're fierce. But then in your gorgeous like scholarship resume, mm-hmm. you have expertise in scalp hair. Yes. There are different kinds of people who work on hair. Right. I, I'm actually pretty rare as a biological anthropologist. Like there aren't a lot of biological anthropologists. I'd say very few who work on hair. And I might be the only one who works on hair in terms of measuring how curly it is and that kind of stuff. But a lot of other people who work on it are like dermatology, cosmetology. I am obviously a hairdresser. Exactly. Um, So before we jump into anything, Mm -hmm. I need to know something. Mm -hmm. Is our hair texture determined by the shape of our Mm -hmm. follicles? Because I learned about that in hair school. That is like, you know, the circle Mm -hmm. and then like the oblong oval and then like the really stretched one. Is that fake? Or it's true. Get ready to throw away everything you ever believed in. Because that is a myth. I know. I know. They were out here lying to you. Who's in my textbooks? Who's in my textbooks? That is not true. But the thing that you're referring to isn't even the follicle. That's the cross-sectional shape. So if you take a hair shaft and you slice it and you look at its cross-section, it can have different shapes. And so some people have noticed, like, sometimes it's round. Sometimes it's, like, flat. And... This actually goes back to when anthropology was doing hair stuff and they were doing a little bit of the racisms with the hair stuff. And so what they like to do is basically say, okay, you have these different races and they have different hair. And I'm like, that we can get with, right? Like different people have different hair, but what they kept on doing is comparing West Africans, North Europeans and East Asians and sometimes Native Americans. And what they seemed to notice in West Africans and a lot of African descendant people when they looked at their hair, that was pretty flat and they had very curly hair. So they basically said, well, obviously it means that round cross sections make straight hair and flat cross sections make curly hair. However, if you actually start measuring like within those populations and in populations that have ancestry from multiple groups, You don't see that anymore. And I've published about that. And there's even people before me who said like, hey, something doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem to be the case that, you know, the flatter the cross section is, the curlier the hair is. So this is an example of having different traits co-occurring in different people and then assuming that they always go together, but they don't. So basically that's fake and that beauty school textbook that I read it just goes back to like that NBC thing instead of the more you know everything has always been racist it's it happens in so many episodes when I never uh but you know Black History Month gotta keep exactly you know we are we are going where that's what's happening so interest also I swear to god those fuckers told me that it was the follicle not even the cross section but you know as a scientist you're gonna like this story in that same textbook they literally said that you could take on some water through osmosis as like a human but then they literally said that we needed to cross it out because that had since been debunked but I remember reading that being like in 1842 or something like I don't think we could like absorb water through our skin like that like totally it felt weird and then they literally like had us redact it ourselves Get your money back. Get your money back. Um, I want my money back. Mm -hmm. I want my money back. So what is hair specifically like human scalp Mm -hmm. hair? Like, is it really? It's it's all of our dead cells, right? Now, that's right. Right. Or is that also some medical myth? Oh, my God. Look at the worry in your face. No, I'm not going to take that away from you, baby. It is not alive. (laughs) Okay, You're safe there. So it is a protein (laughs) filament. Keratin. Keratin. Yes, that is correct. It's keratin. And it extrudes from your hair follicles. So 
it's kind of like your nails in the sense that like there's a place where like the hair shaft gets made that's in your uh, hair follicle in the hair bulb and then basically you have more and more cells that get made and as more cells get made the hair gets pushed out and up and that's how hair grows and the hair that's all the way out is basically dried out those keratin cells are dried out they're they're dead they're not alive which is also i'm sure you've talked to people all the time like you can't like feed your hair things because it's not alive but you can do things to it but you're not going to make it healthy because it's not alive in that sense. I explain it like as you can't make it alive, but there is like molecules and things that can make it like feel better and like less like plasticating the outside of the hair versus like getting a little more in that cuticle. Exactly. The cuticle and the cortex is real, right? It's real. It's real. You're safe there. You're safe there. But it's keratin and it extrudes. It gets pushed out and Mm -hmm. up. Mm Mm-hmm. And so then if it's not the cross-section of our hair, what why is it? is it? Yeah. Great question. So we we don't know is the honest answer. We do not know. And this is the funny thing, right? So does cross-section correlate with how curly hair is? So to answer that question, what do you need to do? You need to be able to measure the cross-section and you need to be able to measure curliness. But until the 70s, there wasn't a method to quantitatively measure how curly something is. Because if you think about it, like, you know, we talk about it, but like, what's the actual measure? What are we measuring? So it wasn't until the 70s that I came across, like, you know, the first paper that that tried to do that and came up with a method. And then it was super hard to actually apply. So my PhD was about basically making an improved method that would make everybody's lives easier to easily measure curvature. Because if you're able to measure curvature, then you could actually ask that question. But if you don't, all you're doing is like subjectively saying, okay, this person's hair is curly. This person's hair is like wavy. This person's hair is sort of in between. Like, that's not scientific. Like, you need to measure stuff. Fuck yes. Okay. <laughs> so makes me think something about like moisture. Cause I feel like when you moisturize hair, like it instantly gets curlier, even if it's straight, like it gets a little more textured when it's like, but that's very different. That's like when we're going to apply our sciences. No, 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 no. We can literally even go into that. Right. Cause that's super interesting. And this is why I'm excited to talk about my methods with you. Cause I feel like you're going to have noticed things. So when it comes to like how curly hair is, one of the things you need to do is like, operationalize how you're defining that. So like we're saying something is curly. What does it mean to measure that and be really specific? When I talk to clients, I'll be like, it's either two fingers or it's like one (laughs) finger or it's like a pencil or I'll straighten out a bobby pin. I'll use like curling irons. Like does it look like this one? Yes. Or is it like, is it fat like this one? Or is it really like teeny, teeny like this one? But that's not... I, I'm realizing, hearing myself say it, that that was a big lack of, like, any sort of... But you're doing so much better than a lot of scientists. Like, because what you're doing is operationalizing it. You're saying, okay, I'm not saying that there's a universal rule, but I'm saying for our purposes so that we understand each other, I'm going to say this is what this means and that's what that means. If you imagine a circle, if you imagine a curl, right, you could fit a circle to it or imagine a circle that fits that curve. And what you can say is, okay, we're defining curvature as the size of the circle that fits that curve. But hairs curl in three dimensions, right? And we're talking about two-dimensional things. So the guy in the 70s, his name's Daniel Herdy. He said, okay, let's flatten the hair between two glass slides and then we're going to measure it. And basically what I did during my PhD is say, okay, what if instead we cut the hairs into super, super small pieces so that it only curves in one direction? And then we're going to say that how much it curves in that tiny fragment, that's the curvature. And so that makes us think about 
does hair curve the same way in a tiny fragment as it does in a full length lock of hair? And the answer is no, because I know a lot of people also have anecdotally told me, oh, my hair is kind of like, you know, wavy or curly when it's long, but when I cut it, I, my, my, my curls and waves were gone, right? And I saw that in some of my samples as well, where it's like that person kind of had like wavy hair, but when you cut it, that hair was straight. And so what we have there is physics. And that's like me slightly almost going out of my lane. But, you know, there's a physics of how rods work. So if you can think of hair as like a rod, the way that physics is going to affect it in terms of like, you know, its weight and all of these things that are going on that affect its shape, moisture gets into play there as well, because that makes a fiber maybe curve in certain ways or or certain cells get smaller or bigger. And so that's going to affect it. And that's separate than, you know, the intrinsic curvature that I'm trying to measure. Which is like the naturally occurring, just like didn't do shit to it. It just is the way your hair comes out. Exactly. Exactly. I feel like with clients and myself, like, you know, my hair is like a little curlier on the edges. And Mm -hmm. then as you work your way, like into the interior, my Mm -hmm. hair is like more wavy. Mm -hmm. So like people definitely have like, like all curly hair people are always like, oh, like this part behaves, this part like Mm -hmm. doesn't. I feel like all curly hair people like know that there's like multiple textures in their hair. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And like there's two different dimensions of it, right? So one of the things that you're talking about and like I've seen your hair, you know, looking cute in all kinds of ways is like the ends of it. They're a little curlier. And so this is something that I'm like going to start doing research into. So like, you know how like Pixar and Disney, like, you know, they animate things. So like one of the things that they do and that they want to start doing better is understanding how to simulate hair. And so like one of the things that they do is physics-based simulations where they're like, okay, if we understand these parameters of hair, this is what's going to happen. So one of the things that you can look at is, okay, if you have a fiber, is the end of it going to be able to curl more because there's less weight hanging on it? So if you think of it that way, like your hair fiber, the top of your hair has the entire weight of the rest of your hair pulling it down, but the bottom of your hair doesn't, right? So does that change its shape? And then if you think about how thick or thin a hair is, so you know when people talk about fine and coarse, I often have to explain to people like fine and coarse is the individual hair fiber. Like some people have really, really tiny hair fibers or really thick ones. If you have a really thick hair fiber, unless it has a lot of intrinsic curvature, it's going to be hard for it to randomly start bending, right? And so you expect a thicker hair fiber, if it's straight, to stay straight. But if you have a thin hair fiber, oh, it's very easy for it to change its shape, right? So those are some of the many factors that are going on in, in all of this hair texture. And I always feel like I have to explain to people like your hair per square inch or like your density, like how much of yep. the hair is on your head mm-hmm. too, because that changes things a lot. Because my hair is like naturally curly if I didn't touch it at all. And at any length, like short, long, mm-hmm. it's always curly. It's That's never so been like, I've never, my hair is never air dried straight. Like even when it was like short, when I had to like cis hat boy cuts growing up, I always have had like curly hair. That's been the most interesting thing for me as well, because a lot of people tell me like my hair changed from when I was young, when I went through puberty. Uh, I'm sure you've had clients probably say like, you know, when they've gone through chemo, like, or menopause. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. or pregnancy. Pregnancy is a big Mm -hmm, one. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what did you find when you, because there's this whole like, we hear about the 1A, we hear about the 1B, Mm -hmm, the 2A, the 2B, the 2C, the 3A, the 3A. So we have these graphs, we have these charts, we we like, I like it Mm -hmm. because it gives us a common language. Exactly. Do we like it though? Look, that's the one. So this is the the thing that I wish people would understand. Sometimes we have a lot of faith in scientists and that faith in them is unearned. Because when it comes to like hair <laughs> stuff, especially when like, you know, people try to understand the genetics of hair. When I go through some of these papers, the language that they use isn't like, you know, this super cool classification system we have, right? It's straight, wavy, 
curly. And then if they're feeling diverse, it's frizzy. I think you'd agree also, like nobody's hair is necessarily inherently frizzy. You have different levels of tightness of curl. Like frizzy is individual just hair fibers. Just needs some are, product. Exactly. It went, through a blow, it went through a wind machine or whatever. Exactly. They're all separated from each other. We like it when curly hair clumps. And so that's like, that's not a hair type. That is a hair condition situation, you know? It's a situation. Yeah. But like, imagine like when the scientists are using like less objective terminology on average than we're using in like, you know, the natural hair movement. So like what I loved about this is like, you know, being a black woman myself who like went natural, like what, when I was like 16, oh, how long ago was that? I don't know. But anyway, the last 20 years, right? Like that all came up. It really allowed me to find other people like myself because when you talk about black people's hair or historically, it's been done with like very dehumanizing language. Like, oh, it's a frizzled mop. It's woolly, which is completely dehumanizing. And just like all this negative terminology, but also it homogenizes all of us. Like my texture is, and you would understand if I say like a 3C, maybe a 4A in some places. See, you know what I'm saying, right? And then there's going to be uh, gorgeous, gorgeous girls with like a 4C texture. And then we know, okay, like that's what we're working with. That is what we're like looking at. And there's all of these different styles that you might want to try on my hair, but not on 4C hair or that you might want to try on 4C hair and not my hair. And that allows us to, you know, have all of this beautiful diversity instead of saying, oh, it's all Afro hair. You know, that's like so dismissive. And the language that we have, literally the words only allow us to talk about the variation in the range of like Europeans, because when they talk about straight, wavy, curly, a lot of times people are talking about, you know, what we see across European populations, maybe Asian populations. So sometimes we say Eurasian, but there is a whole range of hair that is tightly curled, but you want to describe those variations. And so for that purpose, being able to have language is so helpful. Like it makes you feel seen. It makes you feel like, you know, we get to be our individual beautiful selves. Yes. When I look at people who have hair curly, I might say, oh, your hair is curly. But then when I feel like it's like that tighter, like, you know, more mm-hmm. like like a, like a, the size of my pinky, yeah. then I call that coily. And then if it's like tighter, then I say kinky. But that's cute, right? Absolutely, right? When we talk about like wavy, curly, coily, kinky, it makes you feel like, okay, there's a different type. Like it's qualitatively different. But it's a continuum of how tight the curl is. And that's exactly what you're saying, yeah. right? Like you're saying, what is it the size of my pinky? Is it the size of whatever, whatever? It says a continuum. But the, the words we're using, they imply that it's a fundamentally different type. It's important to have the ability to discuss something that is like the same, but just to a different extent, right? And that's oh what it allows yes. you to do. Okay, this is like a sidebar. Then I swear to God, I'm going to get back on my segments, but I just am having so much fun talking. And we've already talked about it. It's like a lot of these terms were racialized in a way of like, you know, these people have Mm -hmm. this hair. Those people have that hair. Mm -hmm. And so when I was in hair school, I started in December of 2005. I finished Mm -hmm. in like October of six. I went to school in Minneapolis. And I remember you didn't get to do any textured hair, which it was like called textured hair. But everybody knows it's like, that's when you start to get to do black people's hair. Like that's what textured hair meant. And that's like what people thought of it as. Yeah. So, like, it went, like, intro, intro two, alpha one, alpha two, beta one, beta two, gamma salon life. That was, like, the evolution of your hair school. So, you didn't get to go into texture Mm -hmm. hair until beta one. And so, inevitably, because it was a majorly white place in Minneapolis, Mm -hmm. like, you would see on beta one day, like, just a bunch of girls from, like, Mount... Claire, Minnesota, like, 
fear in their and, eyes, and so, the actual fear. Yes, yes. Yes. But we had this teacher named Heather who was this like fierce black woman. And mm-hmm. the first thing she said to us, and I, I was really, really excited because like, mm-hmm. all, like all my girlfriends in high school were black. All mm-hmm. I wanted to know was like, how do I do a relaxer? Yes. How do I do a flat wrap? Yes. How do I do my girlfriend's hair? So I was just like so ready with like my notepad. I just like wanted Been to ready. succeed. Let's go. But Heather was like, to, uh, to everyone that was like fearful, she was like, hair is hair is hair. Like it's all hair. There's just different amount of heat or a different uh, process that we have to go through to achieve the look. Exactly. But all of hair is hair. And yep. we, and you guys need to get it out of your head right now yep. that this is, you know, a beta thing. And yeah. that yep. you can't, you got to be doing it for five months or four months. Hair is hair is hair. And yep. you all should know how to do mm. all the types of hair. Yeah. So. That was one thing about her that I've always appreciated, and it's really set me up for success, like, in my career, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because I do know how to do everyone's hair, unless it's, like, a barbering situation, and then I won't really clipper your hair regardless, because that's, like, a whole different thing, and I'm only going to fuck it up, no matter what your texture's like. So, I mean, I can do it every once in a while, but, like, my success rate of a clipper cut's, like, a quarter, and I like to have a higher success rate. Right? But let me be real with you. Like, I DIY clipper my own hair, and let me—don't look at the back, because you thought it looked cute from the front, but don't look from the back. It's not, it's not a good situation. We should find you someone to help you with the back. It's been a lot in COVID and everything, but there are people who can like help yes. you. I, I know that they can. One thing that I've thought about lately is how much racism there is in the hair care industry. I mean, I've thought about it over the last few years because it's like, I feel like a lot of students, a lot of hairdressers didn't have a Heather in their education. They didn't have anyone. Mm-hmm. And one thing like for me that I've always really been hard on myself is like, it's like the edges because I can blow out anybody's hair into any texture. Mm-hmm. Now I know how to do it. Like, I know how to break out my blue foam. I know how to, like, finger wave an edge. I know how to put my little strip on it. See, I, I know don't. how to, like, finish an edge. See, now I do, but it took me a while to get mm-hmm. there. But a lot of people don't. And yeah. they wouldn't know how to style a wig. Yep. They wouldn't know how to style natural texture. They wouldn't be mm-hmm. able to do either. They would just be mm-hmm. overwhelmed. Yep. But you almost can't even separate where we are now from where we've come because this has been an issue, like, in the beauty mm-hmm. industry for such a long mm-hmm. time. Absolutely. The way that I look at hair, right, is from a very biological perspective of like, oh, I'm interested in it from this, you know, almost like abstract way. It's like, you know, you're not doing anything to it. Like I'm actually trying to understand hair at its like basic state when you're not doing anything. Now what you're doing as a a hairdresser is applied like, and it's, it's like a combination of science and art. And so that's also where a lot of the issues lie with, because in order to be a great hairdresser for a range of textures, I can't just give you like, you know, a a textbook, right? Like there is an artistic component where you're like looking at an individual's hair and you have to make decisions about, okay, this is what's going to look good on that person based on what I know about, yes, the biology of that hair, how it's going to respond to materials, but also like you believing that that kind of hair can be beautiful. Like that's also what's going on there. Like, I mean, I think we should be, we should be honest because like some of the responses I've had, like I used to live in Europe from European hairdressers to my hair is that exact horror that you describe where they are overwhelmed. And that fear is also kind of like, they're like, I can't help you because your hair is fundamentally not capable of being beautiful. Right. And so Mm. that like horrible negativity that actually requires you know, even more than the scientific knowledge, which absolutely we should push forward. But I think, you know, people like you, people like Heather, who are like, okay, guys, like, you know, let's go into this as artists, right? And let me show you what's possible, like what you can do with this medium. Really, that's what it is. Like you have this beautiful material that 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 is different, right? Like you can do different things with it. And I want you to learn that the, the, the four or five hairstyles that you know how to do on straight hair, okay, that's cool, that's cute, that can look fierce. 
But there's all this other stuff that you can do. You have a whole world of possibilities that opens up. And that's what people who know how to do textured hair learn how to do. Like, you know, you're doing different hairstyles. You're not doing the same process that you do on straight hair because we have different looks that we want to achieve. And it's more about learning those looks and, you know, applying those looks than it is even about understanding fundamentally the difference between these hair types. Although, of course, that's always good. Yes. Uh, okay, I'm obs- I, I'm obsessed with you. I can't help it. Okay, mm. so how has scalp hair or has scalp hair evolved like <sighs> through history? Yes. Now, let me blow your mind some more. We talk about how humans are hairless, right? Like we're like, oh, like that's what makes us really weird animals. There's other naked mammals. Like, uh, naked mole rats, for one. Dolphins. Exactly. All the naked cetaceans, like, whatever, that ain't special. What cetaceans? Oh, sorry, that's, like, all of, like, you know, dolphins, whales, all of their little game. Yes. But what's weird about us is, (laughs) who else is naked but with scalp hair? No one. That's weird. No That's weird. Yeah. You you gotta commit. We couldn't commit. We said, okay, naked, but give me scalp hair. Because we were cold? No. It's not, and it's not about cold, right? Because we evolved in equatorial Africa. Like, our species evolved in equatorial Africa. In fact, the reason we lost our body hair has to do with thermoregulation and specifically trying to keep our body temperature down. So if you have a very hairy body, evaporating sweat is a little hard. So what humans did is they traded in a bunch of body hair follicles for sweat glands. So we can sweat a lot from our bodies. And that's great because that's the only way we have to cool down. But at the same time, we kept scalp hair. And so that's what a lot of my work has been on, has been asking that question. Because when you look in the animal kingdom and you see one weirdo who had one weird solution that nobody else had, you should look into that. Because there's something interesting going on there. And one of the things that you know with humans is we're bipedal. True. And so what's the thing that's closest to the sun? Your head. And what do you have in your head? You have your brain. And your brain is really sensitive to heat. And it also generates a lot of heat. So imagine we're already in this super hot environment. There's a lot of sun. We're naked. But now the most sensitive part, the most heat sensitive part of our body is closest to the sun. We should probably cover it. I mean, people who are a hairless, whether by choice or because um, they know they need to wear a hat in the sun, right? I mean, if you have a big, beautiful afro, that can help protect your head from the sun much better than straight hair. And so like a lot of the experiments I did during my PhD was actually demonstrating that because no one had done that before. Seeing how like when the sun shines on a big old gorgeous afro, it like protects your shoulders probably, probably protects all sorts of stuff, like gives you like mm-hmm. major sun. So it's to protect us from the fucking sun. Exactly, from that solar radiation because that, that, that shit will bake you. Like I don't know if, if you live somewhere that's hot. If you do, like, you know, I don't know, Arizona, Nevada sun, all of that stuff, like you could probably fry an egg. Dr. Tina, I am really, 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 <laughs> you did not disappoint on that. That, my mind is... So, okay, Mm -hmm. so then what happened? So we traded in our body hair and somehow we kept like scalp hair. And so what's really interesting is that we don't know yet like the timing of these things. Did we first like lose our body hair and then like grow back out our scalp hair or, you know, did it all happen at once? And also like, when did it become curly? Because this is the second mind blowing thing. No, no, it used to be straight. It used to be straight. All of our hair, what? Even better than that, what animals do you know with curly hair? Poodles. I have a poodle actually. (laughs) I have a poodle. How perfect is that? But their hair isn't curly. It's crimped. Sheep have crimped hair. And so it's that bilateral. I mean, you know, you've crimped hair before, right? It's that bilateral wave. Mm -hmm. 
It's fundamentally different than human curls. And especially like, you know, tightly curled hair, like a lot of, you know, black people have. That is nothing like exactly. It's a helix. It's all of these helices that are kind of like, you know, chaotically like, you know, tangling with each other and like, you know, next to each other in ways that is very different from like the way that crimp things work. So if you have something that's crimped, you have all of these fibers perfectly aligning. That's why if you look like at a poodle or a sheep, you can see the pattern, right? And with curly hair, like unless you clump it together to like, you know, separate the clumps, you don't have it laid together. And that's very important because if you have all of these hairs being like separated in this way that, you know, could result in this big afro, you have a bunch of airspace and you have a maximum amount of volume. And it's the volume that keeps you protected because it maximizes the distance between the top of your hair and the top of your scalp. But if you have straight hair, then it all packs right next to your scalp. And basically you can't lose any heat because you are completely insulated by a bunch of straight hair. And so tightly curled hair like humans have, I've never seen it in any other species. I'm still waiting for someone to prove me wrong. I've never seen that kind of curly hair in another animal is unique to humans. Has there ever been like some fossil that had like the hair still in it that was just like some fucking crazy ass texture that like just doesn't exist? Oh, 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 no. Mm -hmm. What about beaded hair? Have you ever seen like that naturally beaded hair? My friend has that. And that was also in my textbook back in Nevada. No. Tell me more. It almost looked like it could have been crimped with one of those teeny, teeny crimped Mm. irons. But it's almost like these little balls on the hair shaft. Naturally. Yes. I've never seen that. It was giving me like nutritional deficiency or something. I'm going to Google it. Yes. Just to show you the beaded hair. But it's going to show me hair with beads in it. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm afraid it'll do. I'm going to do beaded hair condition. Beaded hair condition. Interesting. That's what I'll say. So you've never seen that? So I have. And this is like the thing that I, again, as somebody who only like sees the hair samples, like they get sent in. Monolithrics is a condition that affects hair growth. It's most yep. characteristic features that individual strands of hair have a beaded appearance like the beads of a necklace. Yes, oh, it looks mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. like this. It looks just the fuck like this. That's exactly what my friends look like. Interesting. You so, see those b- little balls and it mm-hmm. looks like crimping. Okay, so what you're tapping into is there's these so-called Mendelian conditions, genetic conditions, where it's considered a pathology or some kind of like disease that does something to hair. Basically, stuff like that is not considered to be normal range variation. So we have a bunch of variation among humans where it's like, oh, we're all healthy, we're fine. There's just different ways of being human. And some types of variation are considered to be medical and like to be conditions, right? That was giving me condition because I was like, oh, like it was giving me like vitamin deficiency because the hair was very like fragile and it felt like if you looked at it wrong, it was going to crack off. Yeah. What is it? Brittle hair like syndrome or something like there's a bunch of different hair types and syndromes like that where, you know, you can have some genetic mutation that affects how your hair is made. Right. And those are very rare. And sometimes they tend to co-occur with like other things in your body where you can definitely say like, it's not just a cosmetic thing. Like you have like a health condition and it's manifesting in your hair as well. But that's not something that occurs like, you know, on a population level, like you'll, you won't find a population where everyone has that kind of hair. So that is kind of like, you know, some of the medical work that's being done. And then from the normal range variation that like anthropologists really work on, you only have like, you know, this curly, coily, kind of hair like that's the 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 type of variation that we have when you look at other animals like that doesn't really exist because most mammals have straight hair 
Most mammals have straight hair. Our closest living relatives, chimpanzees, have straight hair. Uh, gorillas, you know, all of them apes, monkeys, straight hair, straight hair, straight hair, because that's like the default for mammals. And then there's some of them like poodles and sheep that have this crimped hair, but then, you know, we're the only ones who evolved this. And the thing is, we're never going to find a fossil from that old uh, with hair. Because we're talking about, we would want to be finding something from around 2 million to one and a half million years ago. Like you're not going to find hair. You barely find bones at that point because they disappear. But if you understand the genetics of hair, which we're getting better at, like, you know, every day, if you know what genes are playing a role in different hair textures, what you can do is look at, you know, as many different people around the world as you can and understand how does the genetic variation relating to hair differ around the world. And what you can do is basically say, okay, this is what the last common ancestor of all humans had in terms of hair. And then you can even do one better because now there's a a type of you know, research that we can do on ancient DNA because we can find DNA from Neanderthals and they were alive, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, hundreds of thousands of years ago. And so we can get a peek at what they had. So these humans that left Africa way before most of our ancestors left Africa, did they have scalp hair? Did they have curly hair? We don't know. But if we learned what genes were responsible for hair variation, we could ask, okay, did Neanderthals have curly scalp hair, we would be able to find that out in a way that doesn't involve fossils. Okay. 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 Obsessed. Okay. Okay. So, uh, so we talked a little bit about the racialized traits that kind of went along with like the way that we define hair. And we've also talked a little bit about like beauty, the 1A to the 4C. I think in the beauty industry, one thing that I've learned from Biosense that's really interesting is that like when it comes to clean beauty or the idea of clean beauty and the ingredients that are mm-hmm. in there really actually being clean, on average, 25% is marketed to BIPOC women. So there's there's lots of different ways that the, the racializing has negatively impacted folks in the beauty world. Mm-hmm. Another place where we hear about it is medicine. Mm-hmm. So, but how, but I'm going to not look at me becoming a journalist. Uh, Love. How does the racializing of hair impact like say medicine or like forensics? Do I got you? Okay. Well, and now we're going to do a little screen sharing. So one thing that I love to share with people to shock them as a factoid is that there is this dermatological condition quote unquote called woolly hair syndrome we're already not liking it this is already going to a bad place but the really problematic thing about woolly hair syndrome is that the condition is just having tightly curled hair in a non-black race so imagine saying that. Imagine saying that having black hair is what a fuck? condition. And now you're going to be shocked because the gag is, this is just curly hair, bro. Like, imagine going to the doctor and saying, like, there's something wrong with my child because this is what their hair looks like. There's nothing wrong with these kids' hair. When really you should be celebrating because that's like some pretty ass hair. <laughs> but you know what's really interesting? Mm-hmm. I had, I had this family of... Sephardic Jewish people from North Africa, mm-hmm. but they looked like 
they did not. I mean, they looked like it looked like they were my cousin. Like, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. but their hair texture was like yours. Like yep. the tightest, tightest, mm-hmm. kinkiest, gorgeous. Yep. Like to mm-hmm. the point where, like, when you would look at, it, you'd be like, "Oh, like who's this nice? Are you mixed? like white lady waiting <laughs> exactly. for me?" And then, I, but then she sits in my chair, and I'm like, "Your hair texture." And she's like, "Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm Tunisian. Like oh, my family's like Tunisian." Makes sense. Yep. Wow. Yes. Th- so this is in 2017. Exactly. This is still what we uh, look at what I'm saying because like people want to say like, oh, racism is old. I'm like, no, this is in 2017. A dermatological article that writes in the non-black races, woolly hair is certainly an uncommon anomaly of the hair structure. So we really just have like some hardcore, mm-hmm. hardcore Problems. racism in dermatology. Yes. Um. Yeah. Because this is just pretty curly hair. Like it's this just is pretty just like curly pretty hair. curly hair. But, you know, what they'll say is like, oh, like there's psychological consequences to these kids having this kind of hair. And I'm like, because they're because their mommy is too silly, Billy, to put some detangler and like know how to like put in some curly cream. That's what I'm saying. You know, imagine saying that like that is like just such a great example of racism because like we're doing a lot of work here. Right. We're saying that there are certain kinds of hair that are okay to have if you are a certain race, like you are racially okay. And then there's certain kinds of hair that we're saying are not proper if this is your race. That doesn't even make biological sense. That doesn't even make sense. That doesn't even make sense. And then what we're also saying, which is very disturbing, uh, is that there are certain kinds of hair that are so undesirable that it's a disease if, if it's in people who should have straight hair. And the flip side of that is also really disturbing. I've seen a lot of articles where they describe certain kinds of like deficiencies where you have consequences in the hair. and people who are of African ancestry get silky hair. And that was super like upsetting to read, right? Because it's like, you you know, this person has a nutritional deficiency, like it's literally damaging them. But you're like, oh, but the positive side is that their hair is silky now. And they mean silky by like, like European hair. And I'm like, that's how messed up we are in the head that we're like, somebody who actually has a disease and the consequences that their hair looks European, we're like, oh, but that's like a good thing. But somebody who who has nothing wrong with them except that they have curly hair, we're saying like, well, clearly you must be suffering because who would want to have that kind of hair? Because you mentioned forensics. A few years ago, the FBI came out with like a report basically saying like, LOL, remember how we were doing all of this like hair forensic stuff? Well, whoopsies. Uh, we, we, We did a little bit of racism with that and a lot of false convictions with that. In forensics, like hair is trace evidence. And there are people who are experts in recognizing different types of fibers. And what they say is that they can tell apart different people based on their hair. And when they get hair, they're like, okay, what is the race of the racial origin of the person whose hair this is, blah, blah, blah. And so that's like one of the worst examples of it because, I mean, you know, you've looked at hair. I'm like, you could pick two hairs from each of our heads that look completely different and they're both our hairs. So how could you possibly, you know, be so certain about this is whose hair that is? You don't even get to pick. You don't know where on their body that hair came from. And so a lot of people were sent away because of bad forensic applications of hair science. And so that's like what I like to show people is the same in dermatology. So what we're looking at is a is two charts. Yes. And the one on the left is from... Dermatology, a dermatology article. So it basically describes the, the hair of like different races. And they basically have hairs from a bunch of different people and they categorize their hair, their race, and the shape of their follicle. And so what they do is like you see that... People who have frizzy slash black hair, their biological race is black and the shape of their follicle is curved and the shape of their cross section is flat. 
And then with white people, they have a range of different hair colors and hair textures because they're the only ones who are diverse. And then they have one person who is classed as Oriental, which already super problematic. So that's from 1988. Yep. So when I was one. (laughs) And then from the chart on the right is from 2002 from a forensic textbook. And it's a section on the forensic and microscopic examination of human hair. And it basically is teaching forensic scientists, how can you tell what race this hair comes from? This is what Caucasian hair looks like. This is what Negroid hair looks like. And this is what Mongoloid hair looks like. Yep, that's the terms that we're using in 2002. I mean, the terms already are bad, but the fact that they say that these are, you know, fundamental differences, that's super messed up. Because like in my research, I've seen that there's so much variation. Like you have people who identify as Caucasian and their hair cross-section isn't oval. Like it can be round, it can be flat, it can be any number of things. So this is super dangerous because when we say we're 100% sure that, you know, this is what this race looks like and that's what that race looks like, then we just end up saying a bunch of silly things. And also in these graphs, they're saying that like white hair is typically an oval and Mm -hmm. black hair is typically flat. I think that makes it worse for black people because then you can have like a... Exactly. Like all these See, you are onto it, right? Where does the oval end and where does the flat begin? Yep, because you can say a lot of things are like, oh, this is definitely... But there's just so many issues there. Like we, we hate this. This is honestly just not good science it is hard to do forensics right it is really hard to like know like extract so much information out of so little evidence but that doesn't justify using bad racist categories to say oh we're sure about something when we can't be sure about it especially when it's as subjective as shape like it's the dna if you can really like if you can really guarantee that that is the hair from the person or whatever reading dna or reading something from inside the hair like yep if the test is okay, like, the, I feel like I can get behind that more than, like, looking at something as a shape yeah. and saying, like, yep, because what is around and what is oval and what is yep. flat is, it's, yeah. Yep. And, and, and in your research, you have seen all of those shapes exist in all different races. So it's just, it's all junk. Like, the whole thing is junk. Yes. And actually, like, I'm hoping, poor, poor Jonathan, he's being subjected to all my PowerPoints. I have another You are not subjecting me. I am so obsessed. I want more PowerPoints. Oh, is it this one down here with the, with the shapes? Okay, so here we're looking at cross-section. So this is what a cross-section looks like when you embed a hair and you cut it and you look at its shape. Okay, so here the ones on the left, they're like very flat, right? But they're from a person who identified as white. And the ones on the right, they're from a person who identified as black, but we have a round hair, we have an oval hair, we have a flat hair, we have all kinds of cross-sectional shapes. So clearly it's a terrible idea to try and guess someone's race from their cross-section. No, uh, guys, uh, we are not doing the most. Well, we're doing the most while doing the least. Exactly. It's it's a lot. Okay, so great. Great for forensics. So basically, hair samples, not great. Not great for shape. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, not great for shape. And then back to how we should talk about hair and what mm-hmm. your work is and mm-hmm. and what your and what your PhD was on how should we be talking about hair and how should we be accurately measuring it mm-hmm. moving forward so like what's your recommended method for measuring hair texture yes yeah, so 
what I like to tell people is that there's different levels that you can be thinking about hair at, right? Like sometimes when we're talking about texture, we're really talking about like, I look at your hair, like your whole head of hair, and I'm like describing it with a word or a couple of words. And then you can look at an individual hair fiber, which is what I do. And on the level of an individual hair fiber, you can look at how curved that hair fiber is and you can look at its cross-sectional shape, which is what I do. But you can even go beyond that, right? There's people who do like microstructure of hair. So like if you look at that cross-section or even not at a cross-section, like you can look at the cuticle with like microscopes and look at their shape and like all of that information. And you can even do like chemical tests on hair. Like there's all of these ways. So what I like to do is say, okay, I'm talking about hair on the level of an individual hair fiber. How can we talk about like your individual hair fibers and their shape? And then like there's that curvature part that I talk about, which is like going from straight to very, very, very small tight curl. That's what I call curvature. And that's what people call curvature. So it's how curved the hair fiber is. Oh God, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. Go back to that. Mm -hmm. So curvature, honey. Okay, this I am... Okay, so basically, that would be like if you pulled one hair strand out of your hair and then you like cut it into like inch cross sections and Mm -hmm. you look at like how much does that like inch subsection of your hair curve. Exactly. And and that would just be like on a... But that also needs to be on like like washed hair that's like washed, maybe conditioned, and then like no product on it. You'd be very proud because step number one is cutting the hair into small pieces. Then we have that in a Petri dish and we throw it into a bunch of like tubes and we wash it. Like we wash it, we put it through a whole process. And it's exactly what you're saying. You know, what's really annoying for me is I'm like, yeah, you definitely have to wash the hair. Cause I'm like, if I like, you know, I don't know, brush my hair out, it's texture is going to change. But if I wash it, it's going to go back to its original texture. So I'm like, you have to wash your hair. Some of the Scientific papers, they didn't really do that. So I was like, I don't know if I can trust your results. You know? Oh, because they were just like, let people come in with their hair however it was. Who knows how they got the hair samples? We don't ask questions. Some of these papers are very old and we're just like, ooh, we're not going to talk about it. Oh, shit. Right, Okay, exactly. so that's, okay. So that's how you measure. And that's, and then so what's like your, like what's your way of measuring it for the curvature? Like, is it like straight, hella curved, like a minor curve? We like get what, a number. how do you call it? So basically I wrote a computer program that takes an image of hair and it like turns it into black and white. And basically it fits a circle and it tells you, okay, this is the size of the circle that fits the curve of your hairs. So it's all automated. It's all like, you know, just computer image analysis. And then we get a number and that number is related to the radius of the circle that fits that hair curl. So it's a specific number that you get, which is really nice because you can basically see like if we categorize hair and we measure it. So like here I'm showing you like a chart where on the Y axis you have the curvature and that's the number. So that's the specific number of how curved someone's hair is. And the higher the curvature is, the more curved it is, the lower it is, close to zero, it's straight. And if we talk about categories, categories miss a lot of variation. So everything here is very curly hair, but we have all of this range of variation. And so that's what my methods do. Like they measure that variation instead of just classifying it into categories. Because you really have like infinite sizes of curly hair. Exactly, exactly. Exactly. I'm so obsessed with this. I can't stand it. Median curvature versus self-reported hair. Ooh, is that people like not knowing that they had curly hair? So 
yeah, you caught on to that. So basically what I'm showing you is if we categorize people's hair into straight, wavy, curly, and very curly, we can use objective cutoffs. Um, and these are cutoffs that L'Oreal suggested. And basically you see that even if you do it objectively, it's totally biased against very curly hair because it basically says, oh, see all this variation we see in very curly hair? It's not important, whatever. It's all just very curly. And it's even worse when people self-report. So like some people who objectively don't have super duper curly hair would describe their hair as very curly. And some people who say that their hair is wavy, I mean, maybe it's kind of curly. Like what's even, what's the limit? It's very subjective. And so if you compare that to their objective hair curl, it's messy. It's super messy. The only people who seem to agree is straight hair people. They're like, we, we, we agree on what straight hair means, which is great. That's great. We can all agree on what straight hair is. Got it. That reminds me kind of of Jessica Gilbo from season three of Queer Eye. Her, mm -hmm. like her, was, she's like, I'm a strong black lesbian woman. That was mm -hmm. like her, I just, I just love her so much. But when I did her hair and cut it all off, because it had just been like relaxed for 10 years, mm -hmm. she literally thought that her hair was straight. And I was like, queen. Baby. <laughs> My eyes Baby. are not deceiving me. <laughs> and this is some like curly, curly hair. Like it is not. And now you look at her and she's like a fucking literal model with like the curliest, most beautiful afro of all time. It's like the prettiest hair of all time. Mm -hmm. So it, that is interesting that sometimes we don't even know what our hair texture is, which is, that's its whole own thing in and of itself. And obviously it goes without saying that it disproportionately affects black women. It goes without saying. But that even idea that mm -hmm. straight hair is more desirable or smooth hair is more desirable. Like, people called me Brillo Pad, like, having my hair curly. Like, yeah, pe I like, hate that. Just, yep. This, yep. just this idea that, like, oh, you should have, like, smooth, straight hair. It completely yeah. dismisses the beauty and how cool and interesting and diverse mm -hmm. curly hair is. And it is yep. so much fun. And actually, as an applied hair scientist myself, as you yeah. said earlier, mm -hmm. it's actually way more fun because that straight-ass hair, it doesn't hold a curl. It's very fragile. You can't even, like, do that much stuff with it. And you spent all this time setting it, and then it's fucking straight again in, like, three seconds. Yep. Oh, ooh, ooh, I have another question. I have yes. another science question. Mm -hmm. Is it true that when I'm applying heat to hair and stuff, I'm messing with the hair's hydrogen bonds and when it's like addressing the like color or the relaxer that's the sulfur bonds and are there in fact like those two types of bonds or is that a whole fake thing too no so that is correct there are hydrogen bonds and disulfide bonds and so the hydrogen bonds are weaker and basically with heat and water they get broken and then you know they there you get bonded again and then you have disulfide bonds that are like stronger bonds and more permanent but now we're getting like literally at the edge of my expertise because we're getting into chemistry and your girl is not a chemist but those two things are absolutely true and so when we perm hair we break disulfide bonds and then we set the hair to straight or curly, whatever we're perming it to. And it forms again with like weaker hydrogen bonds. And so because of that perming process affecting the disulfide bonds, some people have said like, oh, maybe that's the difference. That's what makes hair curly or straight. It's like how many disulfide bonds they have. And to my knowledge, nobody's been able to demonstrate that. Like nobody's been able to demonstrate like differences in amount of some chemical compound in hair of different textures. So we don't know how that affects things. So it's just a lot of, uh, we don't know. 
Okay, so I did this consultation with this really sweet girl mm-hmm. today who won, like, this JVN hair consultation. She was like, mm-hmm. my hair used to be curlier, but now it's, like, kind of straight. And I was like, is it longer than it used to be? Exactly. Did you used to have more layers? Yep. I was yep. like, did yep. you yep. used yep. to yep. do product? Yep. And she was like, no, same person been cutting my hair for 15 years. Same shape. It just used to be curlier now. I was like, did you have a baby? She was like, no. I was like, okay, did you have like a high fever? Like, did you have some medical thing happen? Mm -hmm. And she was like, no, not that I remember. And I was like, well, okay, I don't know what the fuck to tell you then. I don't know why. But but isn't it true that, but it's true that your hair texture is like determined if it's not hair follicle shape, it, it's definitely your insides. It's not like it you can get biological. a relaxer. It's not environmental. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yep, you're 100% And it's right. never. And I'm like, and if it did have a change on the outside that just so happened to correlate to an environmental thing, it was just a coincidence, not because you like got highlights and then your hair came in blonde. Like there's, yep, it's... Yep. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, basically okay, so what, you're, what you're touching on is that your hair morphology or hair shape is determined genetically we don't know what genes necessarily but we're pretty confident that it's not an environmental factor so it's not like you said like yeah you know you're gonna go somewhere and your hair is gonna change fundamentally in its structure no we don't know exactly what's going on but we do know that there's multiple things that affect gene expression and so one of the big things is hormones so that that's a cool hair thing in general, right? So like one thing that I think is mind blowing about like just biology in general is we have the same DNA in every cell in our body, pretty much, right? Like, you know, except germs, germline cells, we have the same DNA in every cell in our body, but our cells are different. So what is really interesting is like, how does your scalp hair know, okay, we have to be scalp hair. How do your eyebrows know we're eyebrows and not scalp hair? So we need to like tone it down. How does your beautiful, beautiful beard know we need to be a beard here, right? And you didn't always have it because we just saw your cute little kid pictures. At some point you hit puberty and then there were hormonal changes and these kinds of hormonal changes can change gene expression. And that's part of why sometimes you can have changes in your body, even though your DNA didn't change, is just how your body is using your DNA that changed. And so that's what can happen for people. Like, you know, you hit, especially hair color, hair color can change. Like even just like your general pigmentation can change with puberty, with pregnancy. Yeah, because my husband, his hair was really, 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 really red. And the older (gasps) he gets, the more like- Me too, but it's getting like more brownish. Interesting, interesting. So what the fuck is that about? I mean, I can tell you where hair color comes from. I I do a little bit of hair color too. So there's two types of melanins. I know this, fail melanin and you melanin. Yes, how did you know? Because I'm a hairdresser, I learned about it from the same book as this faulty follicle science. At least I got that one right. Oh my God. I usually have to explain this to people. I'm like truly in the presence of my peers. (laughs) I love that. And and we also call it granular and diffuse because bleach breaks up the Mm. granular pigment like easier than it does the diffused because there's like more of the melanin to break up. So it's like, that's why it's so hard to get red out of your hair because it's like a smaller pigment and it's easier for the bleach to target like black and brown pigment Mm -hmm. because it's like bigger, but the more like like yellow and red is smaller. So Mm -hmm. it's like harder for the bleach to blow it up and make Mm -hmm. it appear lighter. And it just like takes longer and see now i'm learning from you because like i didn't know that because like i'm not putting bleach on anything yeah there's all of these different changes because basically you have melanin cells melanocytes and they can produce both types of melanin but basically what happens is there's this biochemical process where if you like just switch a couple of things you can either make pheomelanin or make eumelanin 
And so depending on a lot of factors, like you can just kind of mess with that and then stuff goes like, whoop, okay, we're going to be eumelanin, whoop, we're going to be pheomelanin. And what's really exciting about redheads is that all of us mainly have eumelanin. Like the, the range of variation that we see in hair color from blonde to black, that's just how much eumelanin you have in your hair. The only exception are gorgeous, gorgeous redheads. I love redheads. I did like my master's paper on redheads. So I got a bunch of hair from like people who had red hair. And like we did chemical analyses to see how much pheomelanin and eumelanin they had in their hair. And there's so much variation because some people, they have like a ton of pheomelanin and a ton of eumelanin. Some people have no eumelanin and just pheomelanin. And then there's like all of these different amounts in between. Whereas every other hair color, it's all eumelanin. It's just eumelanin. But redheads have like pheo and you and it's all yes, over the place. It's all over the place. And it's amazing. Amazing. And, you know, throughout your age, like that's going to change. So like one one thing that happens to people in general is like, you know, when you're born, you're honestly like as light as you're going to be. And then when you hit puberty, your entire body is like kind of dark. But in some people, it's especially evident in their hair. It's like when you hit puberty, like yeah, your hair is your hair not a little bit darker than it was when you were a kid. Oh, no. Yeah, it was. Uh, mm. It's kind of been similar. I don't know mm-hmm. why. I'm just like that consistent bitch. You're so consistent. With we love my that. Hair, but we love it. It was probably a little bit darker. I think it's gotten lighter. Interesting. But I think that could be also because I'm starting to go gray. Ooh. Ooh. I have another question on that note, though. And my beard hairs. Uh huh. Okay. I noticed, like maybe ten years ago. A bunch of them were getting like way redder than they used to be. Mm. Like they were all black, then they started getting red. Now all the ones that were turning red are gray. Do you see like all Ooh, these like gray yes. hair? We love a little salt and pepper. We love it. But I think that the that's the red ones are now gray. So I was wondering if that was my body like being like, okay, bitch, we're not making so much melanin anymore. Like we spent it, and then it, it was like, oh, we're yep. red, and now they're gray. So you know what? Science doesn't have answers for this yet. So I thank you for giving me this data. So one thing that we do know is as we get older, the melanin cells in our skin, they're like, okay, you know, we're out here. We're going to keep making melanin. But the hair ones, they're like, I'm out. Peace. Like this is over. You um, put me through it. Doing all this <laughs> shit to it. me. Exactly. I'm, I'm out. And there's basically a reservoir of stem cells at, like, you know, your hair follicles. Hair follicles are fascinating. They're like these mini organs because hair, like, you know, it grows in, in stages and it's cyclical, right? Because it goes through that anagen phase and it grows and then it rests and then it falls out. But it's the rebirth of a whole new hair follicle, basically. So you have a bunch of like uh, stem cells at the bottom of like your hair follicles. And there's also like, that's also interacting with your melanin cells there. So there's some stuff going on there and people are studying it in terms of whether those cells get depleted and maybe the melanin cells that are associated with your hair follicles somehow get you know depleted and tired out sooner than other types of melanin cells but what's really interesting about what you said is like is it possible that they just decided okay we're gonna do more pheomelanin and then it was like oop uh that was like a dead end and now we're just not doing anything i don't know about that but a lot of i've heard a lot of bearded people say like you know they have red in their beard when they don't have red on their head and that i am just fascinated by that that happened to me too and i really don't have red strands of hair mm-hmm, in my mm-hmm. head hair but on mm-hmm. my face there's like a lot of red ones but the red ones for years now have been going mm-hmm. gray like they That's only stay so red for like a little bit and then they just go white and i've also pulled out those hairs where mm-hmm. literally
literally the tips are fire engine red and the root is gray. No, like I've, I've really? actually pulled them out before where it like where the change was like in on please, the hair itself. Please send me a picture. Like if you want that, I will get that because it happens. I mean, it happens like with kind of regularity. Yes, absolutely. Also, kind of side note: Have you ever seen those um like iPhone attachments that are like microscope attachments? Like they basically like let you turn your phone into a microscope. No, is it like an app? Uh, no, it's not an app. Like it's basically like you add it like on top of your phone and you basically just put it on the back. I feel like you would love that. You could look at all the bugs, all the hairs, and then you could just take like a blown up photo of it and like put it on the socials or send it to me. You I have one that. more hair science question. Actually, I have yeah. like 87 more and you're going to have to, just so you know, like you will yes. have to come back for more episodes. Cause like, I would love that. I literally, I did, I didn't get through a third. Is it true that hair that has pigment still has like five to seven layers of cuticle on average? But then once it goes gray, there's like 20 to like 50. And that's why it's so much harder to like cover oh. gray hair because it has all the layers of cuticle. Okay. Look, Jonathan. Please, can you join my lab? I would like you to be a scientist with me because we would do so much great hair science. I've never, I've never heard that before, but we talk about it all the time. We're like, does losing hair color change hair texture? And, you know, me and my advisor have been talking about this for years. But I can tell you objectively, it 100% does. Because, I mean, I've, I've had certain clients who I've done for 15 years. I mean, I have, really? I, and, and some people who I don't do their hair anymore, but I did it for like 12, 13 years and I'm still like friends with them. I, they're still mm-hmm. in my life. But absolutely, I have clients who their hair was brown. It mm-hmm. started going gray. We decided to let mm-hmm. it come out and it definitely changes the texture of your hair. It just makes it a little more coarse, a little bit like drier to uh-huh. the touch. And it will also hold curl better because when it was like pigmented and like smoother, it was like more tenacious. So the cuticle was more packed down. And so when uh-huh. you would curl it, it didn't like hold as good. But then when it got a little bit more texture to it and started to go gray, like there was more roughage on that cuticle. So you could like curl it and it would like hold better. I'm just like fascinated by this hypothesis because I haven't heard it before. Like what we were thinking is like, okay, we expect the opposite, right? So imagine you have your hair shaft and it has pigment in it, like that's taking up some space. So if you're not making pigment anymore, it should be thinner. But for what we're hearing from everyone is that their hair is coarser and coarser means thicker, right? And does does that seem, yeah. does that align with what you're seeing? Like, you know, yes. the hair? Sh- yes. Yeah, I never heard about like, you know, having more cuticle layers. That's like fascinating. But that was in the same book that said that fucking round everything. That book is like a box of chocolates and some of them taste like It was true because some of it was right, but then (laughs) other of it was like so not. That's going to be our project. (laughs) Which that does seem like the nature of science, even though like there was so much racism and like misogyny and homophobia and transphobia and like then the racism going back to the racism and then a few more times. And we've actually seen that play out in real time in COVID. It's like, I think that, you know, the history aside, mm-hmm. for the like now, I I want to hope that I think I believe that we we are trying to do the best with the information that we have yep. now. But yep. then, as you learn more, you have to like change. You have to update your opinion. Exactly, exactly. What I like to tell people about science is like there's there's nothing like fundamentally special about a scientist. It's just somebody who's like, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to observe things and I'm going to try to make sense of it. And the thing is that. 
fundamentally that can't be purely objective right and i i say that i'm like the reason i was able to do all this work and the reason that you know people are like oh wow why did no one do this before so i'm like i'm the only person with my particular set of identities who's had the opportunity to do the science i'm like if there were more you know black women in science i'm sure we would have made some of these discoveries a lot sooner and you know the thing we need to remember is that we need to think about objectivity in the sense of okay how can we make sense of all of the different perspectives that we have. Because if we can find an explanation where all of our perspectives can be slotted in and it's like, oh, that's why you're seeing this and that's why I'm seeing that, then we can be pretty confident that we found something that we can label as like the truth. But if you're saying like, this is what I see and any, everybody else who disagrees with me is stupid, then I'm like, you're not doing good science. Like, you know, we need to find things that make sense to all of us based off of observations. And the greatest way to do that is like to measure stuff and to talk to other people and to be like, what do you observe? Like getting curiouser. Hey, there we go. <laughs> getting, cu getting curiouser about the world around us and like other people's perspectives on the world around us. One thing that I feel like I've taken from this episode a lot that sometimes I feel like I take it for granted, or maybe it's just because I've had like my own journey with it, or I've just... I said this once to Karamo on his podcast, and I think for me, like some of my closest friends and best teachers and most influential people in my life have been black women and people who I looked up to the most and like wanted to emulate and wanted to like, I just looked up to them the most. Like they were in many cases in my childhood, the people who fostered the creativity, who let me be me, who embraced me, who like let me be a part of their world. And I think that's it's one of the many reasons why I have so much love for black women in my life because they have just been such a huge part of my life. And that being said, I think that's also part of why I was like, like I think about the scene in Getting Curious, the TV show with Michelle Buteau when we're watching the commercials, the 80s hair commercials. Yes. I'm like, I want that style. I want that one. And, and it's like, and in that moment, is it's interesting because that that was not scripted. Like we were just like watching stuff mm -hmm. together, and it's like to me, part of why I left it is it was like an interesting conversation and observation about privilege that to mm -hmm. someone who has not had to deal with the racism yep. around hair, it's like you just see cool. Like at least yep. for me, yep. I just see yep. this as like cool, fun hair. Whereas not for trauma. her, she's like, <laughs> right. And exactly. so, as to say that I, I for all sorts of reasons, have naturally and instinctually mm -hmm. celebrated black mm -hmm. women's beauty and thought mm -hmm. it was really cool and thought it was mm -hmm. really beautiful. And like, I like to the point where as an adult, I've been like, wait, I don't, you, you weren't ready for beta one. Like you weren't really, cause I've been trying to learn about Bantu knots for like five years now. So you weren't <laughs> trying to, okay. Cause you know, um, mm -hmm. so, so I, I love for us to celebrate it. But one thing I'm taking from this conversation is, is that like, that is one thing on the base period for everyone we need to understand that like diversity in hair all hair mm -hmm. is beautiful mm -hmm. it is beautiful period. period just you have to know that it's beautiful and I think that's something that we all have to just take for me as a host and as a person mm -hmm. like not taking it for granted because that just mm -hmm. is like what my world view is but we're not all there yet and we've all still are getting baked in this like misogynistic like racist soup out mm -hmm. there sometimes mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. knowing that we have to celebrate diversity and beauty is one thing that I'm taking from this mm-hmm but the other thing that I wanted to ask you is kind of the same question is like, how can listeners use what your work has been and what your science has been to better understand their own hair? Hmm. Well, there's a probably like two aspects uh, that I would love people to take away. And one of them is 
there's so much variation. There's so much diversity in, you know, what gets homogenized as black hair. And honestly, that was part of what made me do this in the beginning because I was like, hey, like there's a difference between my hair and my dad's hair and like, you know, my other black friend's hair. Like, you know, we have like so much variation and you're just kind of dismissing us as like having quote unquote Afro hair. And I'm like, no, look at how cool all of the different ways you can have Afro hair is. Like, you know, that's really what what put me in this because I was like, we're only talking about like, you know, white people's hair. And I'm like, yeah, sure, that's fine. But like, please, you know, look at all the ways in which we're diverse and beautiful. So that's one of the things I'm like, there's so much variation, guys. And I'm like objectively proving that that's, that's been my bag. That's been my academic bag. Looking at all of this variation. And then the second part is our hair is literally unique and incredibly special from an evolutionary perspective. Imagine that the hair type that has been so dehumanized is the hair that no other animal has. Like that is wild to me. Cause I'm like, if there was a trait that only white people had and no other animal had trust, we would know everything about it. I've thought about that like 10 times, but I didn't want to sound like a basic white person. But I was like, for all of the villainization that, you know, because like it's civilized to be like this and whatever. Actually, we were less evolved because we were out getting a sunburn, getting the scalp torched, getting the face (laughs) torched, aging prematurely, looking like a fucking dried up leather handbag. When in reality, this gorgeous hair texture was a literal, not only was it a fashion staple, but it also protected you from all of this premature aging rays and hurting our scalp and our face. Well, actually, and our brain. black women's scalp and faces from the fucking sun. Yeah. So really, actually, Darwin and your fugly cousin, mm-hmm. you know, can go. Well, I don't even want to say suck a dick like that because you'd be so lucky. You know what exactly. I'm saying? You can just go exactly. get a different profession because actually that is, it's amazing. Yeah, I thought about it like eight, like eight times. It's so fierce. It's the coolest. Yes. And we need to have a whole other conversation about like Darwin because he actually had a book on sexual selection where his whole thing was like, actually, you know, guys, Europeans aren't beautiful to everyone. Everyone thinks their own people are beautiful. It's a whole other episode we need to do, girl. It's a whole other. I'm so like you. basically, so he was. So I know. Like, shocking. I, so that's cool that, that he is cool. realized yeah, he, that. Yeah, he was like, hey, guys, actually, you know how we don't like dark skin? Well, people with dark skin actually think dark skin is pretty and they think white skin is creepy. Like he went around the world or he got testimony from people all around the world who said like, yeah, like we think the beauty we have in our people is very beautiful. And we think you strangers are not that beautiful. And it just goes to show that, you know, what we consider beautiful is a construct and it depends on like how you view yourself. There is no one who is inherently more beautiful than other people. If someone has listened to this podcast and they are like, wait, academia, science, I could, I'm like so obsessed with everything that Tina is saying and doing. I see myself there. I want to get into like, what, what guidance do you have for listeners that want to learn more? Like from like just a little more all the way to like, oh my God, I need a career shift because I didn't realize that we could study this. First of all, follow me on my socials because I do talk about like how to deal with academia, how to get into academia, how to do this kind of science. And just like in general, please, you know, contact me, ask me questions. I love to answer them. So do follow the socials. I know I'm doing that. Uh, (laughs) I'm doing that. So we should all be doing that and no more Mm -hmm. free advice there. (laughs) So then what's next for you and your work? So I'm having recently finished my PhD, I'm going to be moving on to doing more postdoctoral work. And so one of the regions of 
research I'm going into is computer graphics. I want to help our, you know, computer graphics queens out there. You know, we had Brave, but we need to have more curly representation. Like, let's see what we can get in there. Let's see what we can get on the next Toy Story. You know what I'm saying? And Kanto is looking real good. I want to get into that and find a way to like represent all of us on screen because that's like, you know, beautiful. And I'm going to keep doing genetic research. So I'm like, one of the things that's a bonus if you follow me is if I start doing more genetic research where I need participants and you're like, I want to know more about my genetic ancestry and my hair from a scientific perspective, you could maybe participate in some of my research. So that's ooh, coming ooh, up. I want to do mm-hmm. that, but I don't want to do 23 and me in case one of my relatives murders someone. Exactly. Even though I think my uncle already did it. So we're probably, it won't be me, but I just, I was trying to protect the other people. You know what? I see you. I see you. There's ways around it and, you know, privacy and safety are number one. So like, I, I will always talk about that and tell you how you can avoid that. And then the other thing is that hopefully I some point uh your girl might be at some point a professor and then you guys can all come study with me wouldn't that be fun you should come to my lab I when i have future. one i see it in your future <laughs> i just i absolutely see it in your future and you are such a just genius person in this scholarship the way that you approach your scholarship the way that you are able to articulate such dense confusing stuff is really amazing i we must have like we have to have you back for part two because this has only like just wet my whistle i think so we're following we are becoming a full professor we are also helping with computer programming that's major Mm -hmm. is there anything else i've had so many thoughts but i was so too excited to write them down because you made me really excited big relatable content (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on Getting Curious. I love you so much, Tina. That was so much fun. And just thank you so much for coming on Getting Curious. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. Our guest this week was Dr. Tina Lassisi. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, honey, please introduce a friend. That's how we keep the lights on around here. Let's get everybody into podcast, shall we? And please show them how to subscribe. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJBN. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Zara Krim. Let's keep getting curious. I'll see you next week. Yeah. <laughs>